the prerequisite to being a healthy, conscious parent to any child is to be the parent to your inner child that the child inside of you still so desperately needs. If you haven't yet done that, then you're going to project all of those unresolved wounds onto the next generation. This is why you see patterns repeat themselves generation after generation. One of your first introductions into archetypes is your relationship with your parents when you're a child. I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Je m'appelle Rick Safriz, et c'est le podcast du Gidecolo Holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. It's not often that I come across people who show up in the world so authentically that they make you kind of want to shift your barometer just a little bit, your, uh, let's say, thermostat just a little bit in order to just be a better person. And Greg Schmaus is one of those people. He's the CEO of, he's a holistic health practitioner that's done quite a bit of training under Paul Check at the Check Institute. He's a shamanic energy healer and he's a massage therapist. And he's really these things. Like this is really what Greg does. He's been on this path for about 10 years and he um, has finally come around to putting together an online 21-day holistic mental health program, which is so desperately needed in the world. Everybody talks about physical wellness is all about what are you eating for breakfast? What's your morning routine? How mobile are you in your hips? Like that's all really important stuff, including your like bench press PR. But what about the mental? What about the emotional, the spiritual aspects of who we are? And this is really, I think, interestingly, back you know in the 16th, 17th centuries when medicine was starting to turn towards this reductive, materialistic way of viewing the body. We needed that at the time, you know. We needed a separation of medicine from the dictates of the church and state, who at that time, you know, we're just coming out of the witch hunts, you know, across Europe and into eastern part of the United States. We were desperate to break free from the stronghold, especially of the Catholic and Protestant churches. And in doing so, in philosophizing through Rene Descartes, Francis Bacon, we were separating the mind and the spirit from the body, which was important. It allowed us to dissect into bodies and whatnot, but we haven't shaken that. And we've actually doubled down, tripled down on this notion that human beings are merely comprised of a bunch of atoms and you can understand everything from imaging, lab work, etc. When you look at a human body like that, you get what we have in our society today, which is a completely underwhelming mental and emotional healthcare sort of space. You know, we can tell we have the best surgeons around, but most hospital systems, most communities in the United States do not have much to offer for women who are recovering from miscarriages that are suffering through the loss of a baby in the uterus or a newborn baby. And you're left kind of alone, siloed off from the world struggling with the realities of this emotional burden, 
which is really hard for the psyche. And it also manifests in the physical as well. When we don't address the mental, the, emo the emotional, the physical aspects of the human experience, we end up with pathology. So fortunately, there are people like Greg out there. And I feel so privileged, honored to know this guy. He's really done so much work. And he is a father, but not biologically. His partner has several children, and he has been thrust into this role of fatherhood without even that nine to 10 month preparatory period when you get that positive pregnancy test. You know, that's a very, very challenging transformational period. And if, if you want to know more about that, I talk a lot about this on the show, but also on the Path podcast with Mike Salemi, one of my dear friends. We get really, really deep into fatherhood as well. And not to mention my interviews with Kyle Kingsbury on his podcast, another amazing podcast, the Kyle Kingsbury podcast but also his interviews on my own show. So Greg is doing some really, really great work. He is a licensed clinical massage therapist and body worker through the Institute for Therapeutic Massage. So he definitely gets the physical. This guy's doing Tai Chi every day. He's doing meditation every day. And he's really, really doing a lot of that inner self-reflective work that helps him engage as a therapist for others. So you're going to love this episode. As always, we can't do this without our sponsors, BirthFit, is the first one. At birthfit.com, you're going to find pregnancy and postpartum specific lifestyle programs. They do um, nervous system supported general strength and conditioning. They do human foundation movements. They work on the core and pelvic floor. And they've created this community, the B community, made for women by women who really want to dial in the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of moving through the transformation that is pregnancy into childbirth and then beyond into the postpartum period. For listeners of the show, you can get one month free of their B community. Just go to birthfit.com, enter code BELOVED at checkout. This episode's also brought to you by Fullwell. Fullwell makes, I said this time and time again, the best damn prenatal vitamins and virility vitamins on the market. They also have fish oil. They also have a nourish nerves tonic, which is amazing. I include all four of their products because I trust this brand so much in my PRP fertility program which you may be hearing about halfway through this episode. Ayla Barmer, the owner, is a registered dietitian. She has overseen the creation of these products and oversees the entire manufacturing process. You're going to get the highest quality, the most capable and complete nutrition through their prenatal vitamins. And the same goes for you men. The virility vitamins are going to get your sperm moving well, growing well, and you're going to have more than you need in each time that you ejaculate with the adequate nutrition plan. And I think that Fullwell's virility vitamin is an important part of that. If you want to try out Fullwell's products, you can go to fullwellfertility.com. Code BELOVED10 will get you 10% on everything that they make. This episode's also brought to you by Immune Intel AHCC. That's AHCC stands for Active Hexose Correlated Compound. It's made from the mycelia of shiitake mushrooms. It has been clinically demonstrated to clear persistent HPV infections. It helps with any dysregulation of the immune system, including autoimmune diseases, cancer, skin conditions, etc. I love this product. It is really, really an all-around go-to daily supplement. And if you've got persistent HPV, you owe it to yourself to give yourself two to three months trial of a course of Amino Intel HCC. If you want to try this product out, go to The Medicine. That's The Medicine without the E at the end, T-H-E-M-E-D-I-C-I-N.com slash products. Enter code BELOVED. You'll save 10% on your purchase. Next up, we have Organifi. Organifi makes, hands down, the most responsibly, intentionally made nutritional supplements on the market. We're not talking vitamins here. We're talking 
scoops of different blends of a variety of ingredients that are all non-GMO. They're all USDA organic. They're all glyphosate residue free and they're all gluten free. This is a really, really, really clean product, especially if you're dealing with autoimmune conditions, you're dealing with adrenal issues. Again, immune dysregulation. If you are a person who is trying to dial in your health, optimizing your nutrition is the easiest way to do that. And fortunately, Organifi for listeners is offering 20% to anybody who wants to try out their product lineup. So go to Organifi.com slash beloved or enter code beloved in checkout and you'll save 20%. I recommend getting some of the green juice, the red juice, the gold latte. And if you're a woman listening, the uh, Cacao Harmony blend is made just for you. You don't want to pass up on this opportunity, guys. Organifi makes the best of the best. And then last but not least, Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers is a company started by my friend Wade Lightheart, and they make a variety of products. They're all very, very clean. I want to tell you a little bit about their Masszymes product. When my wife and I get home from long trips, we always treat ourselves with a big Chipotle burrito. It's like a four-pound baby that's going to go in my belly, and it's guilt-free. It's just like, I just want to enjoy this burrito been a long journey. So we'll take two capsules of the Masszymes and two capsules of their HCL breakthrough, and that will help digest the food. It helps to reduce the likelihood of getting reflux or heartburn, although I don't have issues with that myself. Um, it helps you when you break down your food, you digest it well, then you can also optimize the nutrient absorption from your gut. So Bioptimizers is a full product lineup that you definitely want to check out. You can use code BELOVED at checkout and you'll save 10% or go to bioptimizers.com slash holisticobgyn. You'll see some of my favorite products there and you can take advantage of the discount. All right, guys, I have said enough. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Greg Schmaus of Healing 4D. Greg Schmaus, welcome to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. You came highly recommended from a couple mutual friends of ours, namely Kyle Kingsbury, Paul Check. Who are you and what do you do in the world? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And it's funny that who am I question is something that's come up a lot for me recently. So I think it's very interesting that you're coming right out of the gates with that. And what I realized just kind of sitting in quiet prior to recording is how healing podcasting is for me and that question, who am I? Because we'll talk about archetypes today. And I very much have this invisible child archetype who loves to sit in meditation, loves to go into the void and finds a lot of peace in there. But it's actually a beautiful hiding spot for me actually coming into myself in individual form. So that question, who am I, is a question that I haven't fully answered, but the question that I can answer is who I'm not. And I feel like that's been kind of my journey recently is coming more to who I am is more of the releasing of who and what I'm not. And who and what I'm not are all of those identities and ego structures that I've held on to and the spiritual path being what we're called to let go of. But, you know, me and my work, my work is really a reflection of my own healing journey, which started about 10 years ago with a lot of obsessive compulsive disorder, a lot of anxiety, a lot of gut issues. So 
just like it does for many healers, it's their own healing that kind of initiates them kind of into their path and the work that they do. So that's really where I kind of gave birth to 4D Healing, which is my business and Healing the Mind, which is my 21-day online program. Yeah, that's amazing. I want to comment on what you said about this journey of finding out who you are. One thing that, you know, Paul and his programs through his holistic lifestyle coaching at the Czech Institute, et cetera, one thing that I really gained from that was that I start with my clients answering that question. Who are you? What's your purpose? Where have you come from? Where are you going? And it's amazing how many people can't answer that. If you ask them, what is that one love, their one big dream, that's step one. And they may say, I want to sell seashells by the seashore, but instead I'm an accountant at a firm that I really hate. And I'm spending 40 hours of my waking time every week doing that thing. Well, listen, unfortunately, everything else that comes after that is going to be impacted by that question. And if you can't identify your one love, let's at least try to identify your greatest nightmare. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people, even though they are in adult bodies and whatnot, they've still continued to... I don't know, cave perhaps to this temptation to live through the conditioning that we've been granted all the way from the time we were babies when we had to raise our hands to go pee, you know? And so I'm talking about like in school. So if you can't identify your one love, and you can't identify your greatest nightmare, are you living your greatest nightmare? Because until we get that resolved, nothing else matters. You can't polish a turd, so to speak. It's like going into the body shop and getting a paint job whenever your engine's falling apart. Not to use the metaphor of a car for a human being, but I think that that metaphor actually serves some people in that regard. So I do appreciate that about you. And I think many of us, if we can't find our one love, let's find what we're not. Let's find the things that we're not. And let's try to shift our life in that direction, in the opposite direction. Well, for me, I do have a very strong sense of purpose. I feel like I have a strong mission in my life, and that is really to serve the healing of others. And bring a lot of the mindfulness and wisdom and knowledge that I gained from my own personal journey into the work that I offer those that I work with in my one-on-one coaching and in my program. So when I said it's more who I'm not than who I am that I'm discovering, that's more of like the shedding process. Absolutely. It's kind of like the peeling back the layers till you get to the core of you and I would be lying if I said I knew exactly who that was, because I think certainty is one of the most dangerous states to be in. And curiosity is one of the most powerful states to be in. Oh, 100%. So with that question, I'm always staying curious and trying to avoid like having a certain answer because then I'm kind of like locked into something. But outside of that, you know, the purpose is really what I resonate with. Like for me, Like I love Paul's teachings, like have a dream, your one love. But for me, the word purpose is the word that I most resonate with, which is something that I feel like I have. And up until really aligning with purpose, it was so easy for me to see how people self-sabotage. Because when you don't really know, like, why do you want to be healthy? Why do you want to be vital? Like what gets you up in the morning that's driving your desire to make affirmative choices for yourself. It's like there's so much investment in not healing when there's so much secondary gain in not healing when you don't really know what your purpose is, which we'll get into all of that in a little bit with some of the archetypes. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with some of those questions right now. 
I love that. And I also love that your curiosity was, I think for people like us, curiosity is our greatest gift. It's this opportunity to acknowledge day by day that perhaps there's another layer to shed. It's not serving me anymore. And it's actually impeding me, perhaps, I don't know, pursuing this purpose that we've been called to do. I think that that's very wise, Greg. And I do want to emphasize to anybody listening, the reason that I wanted Greg to come on the show is for exactly the reasons he's describing. If you're on the fertility journey, if you're about to become a parent, these types of questions are very relevant. Your purpose can actually shift. It may completely change. I know you're in a relationship and you have a bunch of stepchildren. You didn't have to go through the tempering process of waiting for a baby and trying to conceive and all of that, but does that make you any less of a father? Absolutely not. You actually now are in a more challenging role, perhaps, maybe. I mean, at least from my perspective as to what that would look like, because you didn't prepare all of this time to go through this archetypal transformation that was going to happen, whether you like it or not. You were thrust into that. So can you actually comment you know, on that? I became a parent by having my wife. You know, She got pregnant. We had two babies. You were thrust into the role of being the dominant male figure in these kids' lives. Tell me about that. It's been the biggest shamanic journey of my life. And it's funny, like prior to this relationship, I thought I was healed. I thought I had my shit together. I was just like going about my business, kind of doing my work and coming back to my own place, living on my own. And then I'm brought into this relationship where, you know, we're all living under the same roof. We got three kids at home, dogs and chickens. And all of a sudden, every aspect of me that I thought was healed starts coming right back up to the surface. And one of the biggest lessons that I've really learned and am in the process of really stepping into is reclaiming my own masculinity. Mm. You know, when I was much younger, I was very masculine. I was an athlete. I was kind of always like this hard charging, kind of like physically oriented person pursuing professional sports. And then I hit my kind of almost like midlife crisis at such an early age that I went through my own healing crisis, which shifted me much more into my feminine nature, much more into the surrender, much more kind of like redirecting my attention inward. And what I realize now is that was obviously an important transition in terms of me rebalancing myself, but I see how I got stuck there. I got stuck in the feminine and I was unwilling to really step into a healthy masculine role, which now this relationship and home environment with children that are not biologically mine, but me learning how to step into that empowered role as the man, that's been really, really challenging for me, especially because I didn't have a great relationship with my father growing up right? I was very much mm. afraid of his anger and afraid of his power. So when my anger or power or passion comes up inside of me, and I need to like lay down the law or set a boundary, it brings up a lot of fear inside of me because the child in me still doesn't feel safe with that energy. So I would very much either shut down or disassociate from those parts of me and fail to really show up in that empowered masculine role. So it's definitely brought up all the parts of me going back to early childhood that I still really needed to come face to face with. And another thing that it's taught me is, you know, a lot of us who are on this healing journey and journey of spirituality and personal development, 
we do so much work on ourselves. We're always doing more journaling and more courses and more inner work. And all of that stuff is great. But what I realized is that if you just participate in life and you just participate in the situations that life and spirit are bringing to you, all of that healing actually happens just through your participation. Yeah, yeah. Like I had a lot of woundedness around like my own voice and expressing myself. And I used to do so much like inner child work and this and that. And I thought I healed all of it. And then I go into a podcast and my heart's pounding and I feel like I can't express myself. And it's just like, maybe I just need to do the thing and step into the situation that feels really uncomfortable. And maybe I don't have to do so much spiritual busy work if I'm just participating in what life is presenting me with, you know? So there's been a lot, but that's just kind of how I would, I guess, encapsulate it thus far. When you use the word masculine, this piece of the conversation that we're having is really important for people who are embarking on, you know, growing their family, the parenting fatherhood journey, especially for men like me and you. I didn't have a great relationship with my dad. I think I experienced what we would call toxic masculinity. There was a reservation of feelings, of emotions. There was very little, it doesn't seem like my father had been incentivized to outwardly show love. And I'm speaking to the masses here because there are very few men who grew up in a household who are our age, grew up in a household where their dad was just there, just present and was just gushing with love and maybe also a disciplinarian. But balancing that out with just affection, with hugging, with touching, with kissing, I do have those memories with my dad. But when I look back and I had to start coming to terms with my own journey as a man, as a masculine energy dominant man, let's say that. I mean, I am a problem solver, Mr. Fix-It, strong. I want to be big and bold and powerful and nobody's going to mess with me. I got that from my dad. And there's a part of that in the mountain, the, the masculine but when you think back on your journey with the divine masculine, with the yang, balancing that with your feminine and trying to make a more cohesive arrangement between these two energetic principles, what would you say was the work there? Like, how did that work come to be? Was it experiential? And where do you hope that it will go through perhaps additional experiences as a father now, as the man standing on your own two feet, flesh and blood. Yeah. So what comes up for me is this balance between power and humility, where I see the masculine side of this polarity as power and the feminine side as humility. And I started my journey, like I was saying earlier, almost like all power, no humility, kind of hard charging athlete. And then once I hit my, let's say, crisis, I went to the other extreme for a very long time of almost like excessive humility, but very disempowered, kind of like that wounded feminine who's feeling victimized by everything, like the empath who just feels overwhelmed and victimized by relationships and environments and things like that, and really has a hard time stepping into one's power. So my journey recently has really been about maintaining that humility, but also stepping into my power at the same time, whether that involves speaking my truth, having uncomfortable conversations, setting important boundaries. A lot of the masculine, for me, you know, I was on the Sacred Sons podcast recently, and 
we were talking about the masculine energy and how it's a lot about creativity, command, and contribution. Mm, creativity, how it's, command, instead and contribution. of sex, money, and power, it's creativity, contribution, and command. Wow. And those like three C's have been like in my mind for the last couple of months of the wounded masculine being sex, money, power. And the healthy expression of that is create contribute and take commands. So that's what I've been really called to kind of move towards and step into. And I can't say that I'm there, but I'm kind of moving in that direction. And every day is just another learning process. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that power humility balance, I think is like really important when it comes to balancing those masculine and feminine energies. Because the feminine's all about humility, but maybe disempowered when it's imbalanced. And then the masculines, you know, maybe the abuse of power and lack of humility, which we see a lot nowadays, you know, in politics and everywhere you look, there's a lot of that, like all power, no humility. So to me, like empowered humility is like that kind of center point. Yeah, yeah, totally. Were there any resources that helped you kind of reframe the masculine? And there's a couple books that are always kind of passed around, but I'm curious which ones were most helpful to you. Obviously, King Warrior Magician Lover is a great yeah. one in terms of the male archetypes. But there's the Way of the Superior Man. David Data. I remember reading years ago. But honestly, a lot of my journey recently has been putting the books away and just participating. Mm, and it's I just like that. if you just participate, like Life is going to provide you with everything that you need to know at any given moment. And, you know, I love Trevor Hall's music. And I know in one of his songs, it's, I think the lyrics are, no more books, no more empty words. I now learn from the wind and the rain. And I'm literally in the process of like selling my library and like (laughs) donating books just because I'm like, okay, no more empty words. Let's just participate and allow life to teach, you know? And that is so relevant for parenting. People are like, what books do you recommend? And I'm like, buddy, there is no book to becoming a good dad. I don't care what you say. There is no single book out there that's like, there actually is a book that's like the instruction manual for babies. Like that's not the point. The point is that you're going to go through this incredibly challenging transformation and you can't understand it or make sense of it until you're in it and you're just figuring it out. It's like, I mean, it's like, hunting. I mean, it's like any practical thing, but for some reason we over-intellectualize this and we forget like the journey is the actual experience. There's no way around it. You don't biohack your way out of learning how to be a present father or to be a respectful man. You know, it's just something you have to be willing to accept what happens and to make small changes and try it again. It's like with any relationship, there's not a guidebook as to how Greg and I are going to be friends. Like you just figure it out. So I think that's really, really helpful context to give, you know, for people who maybe are, I think a lot of people get stuck in this. Like I got to do this, the next level of the training for this. I need to find the right therapist and we're going to work together and I'm going to find this right mentor. That's all important, but that's not the entire thing. You at some point have to put the books down and go and get dirty. And that's what life is. Life is dirty. (laughs) Let's get into some of the archetypal work. You know, we talked a little bit, you know, I gave you some vague questions beforehand. It was like, what can we explore? And you sent me this incredibly beautiful list of insights as to what you do within the 
let's call it the you know archetypal work. You've already kind of touched on it a little bit, but how do you approach this conversation around archetypes? Why should we care about archetypes? And by the way, that title of the book, King, Magician, Warrior, what's the fourth one? King, Magician, Lover. Lover. Those are four archetypes of the masculine. So for anybody who's wondering, that's what the title of that book is about. It gets really in depth on some of these things. Why don't you start by, you know, I'm a total stranger to archetypal work. You know, I have no idea what you're talking about. What are we talking about here? So archetypes are really the vehicles that we use to express ourselves, Mm. right? So if you take like king, warrior, magician, lover, those are the four male archetypes that we all consciously or unconsciously step into. And part of what we're going to talk about today are the survival archetypes, which are the ones that we all have, whether you're a man or a woman, we all have survival archetypes. And these are the archetypes or the roles that we play that allow us to ensure safety, security, and survival. What a lot of people don't actually know is the king, warrior, magician, lover actually matches up perfectly with the four survival archetypes. The king and the child go together. The warrior and the victim go together. The saboteur and the magician go together. And the prostitute and the lover go together. So a lot of the shadow expressions of those four male archetypes For example, the immature king is carrying a lot of the wounded child, right? The immature warrior is taking victims or is victimizing self or other. The unhealthy expression of the magician is full of the saboteur because the saboteur is all about illusion and deception. Right, right. And then the prostitute and the lover, the prostitute is what we do in the name of love but might be more from a place of safety, security, self-compromise, or negotiation. So the truth is that all of these archetypes are really our relationship with our own power. Oh, I love that. All archetypes really relate to your relationship with your power. For example, when we play the victim, we play this powerless role as a way of feeling in control. For example, I'll give you a real life example. When I was a child, my dad was a physician, like Western medicine, orthopedist, and he and I never really had a deep emotional connection. But when I was sick or when I was in pain, my mom would take me to his office and I would get the best treatment from him, his partners, his nurses. So the victim inside of me said, when I'm in pain or when I'm sick, I get more love from dad. I get more connection with my father. So the victim plays this powerless role almost as a power play to get its needs met, to feel more in control. Playing the sick role. Yeah. Yes. So the saboteur is really our relationship with truth. The saboteur is what protects us from the truth that we don't want to look at, right? Whether it might be the truth that I don't like my job or this relationship isn't serving me or where I'm living is not serving me anymore. The saboteur always self-sabotages to keep the status quo because it's convenient and familiar, even though it's disconnecting us from truth and empowerment, right? So ironically, the four survival archetypes actually protect us from our own empowerment to ensure survival. 
which is kind of like an ironic thing. We disempower ourselves to ensure our survival. And these are all learned behaviors or patterns of adaptation that we developed as a child. Like, for example, the prostitute archetype is where we compromise, negotiate, sell ourselves, or prostitute others. And when I explored this in myself, I remember when I was like 10 years old, my mom would give me like 10 bucks to go to the movies and to go for ice cream with my friends. And I remember actually buying my friends' movie tickets and then buying their ice cream when it wasn't my money, I didn't have a job, and there was no reason that I should do that or had to do that. But I remember looking back, what I was doing was I was buying their loyalty. I knew on some level that if I bought their movie ticket and their ice cream, that there would be a greater chance that they would stay friendly with me. And that's just like a 10-year-old's mind of actually stepping into the prostitute archetype of using money, for example, as a form of manipulation, as a form of trying to gain some sort of guarantee, right? So these are all survival mechanisms that we develop as a child. And until we start to do the healing work, we always revert back to them during times of stress, which is why like times of pandemic is when you also see the survival archetypes on the forefront. Yeah. Because any time that nervous system shifts into that fight or flight state, we always revert back to the old survival mechanisms, which are child, victim, saboteur, and prostitute. You had me thinking, and for some reason, Viktor Frankl came up, and probably because you had already kind of set that into motion with sort of the purpose we have. And the one quote that I always think about, and Viktor Frankl, for anybody who doesn't know, wrote a book called A Man's Search for Meaning. And of course, it's not a book about men. It's about the human experience and what we have control over and what we don't have control over. And the one quote that I always turn to is, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And when I think back to the things that we used to do when we were embodying these survival archetypes, it never feels good to look back and to realize how you were behaving. But in the moments we chose to do that, like you said, for the purpose of survival, it does make me thoughtful about if you remain in that survival archetype, you're really never embodying true power. You're never really doing the thing that is best for you. You're doing something to keep other people off your back. It's sort of like shoveling water out of the boat, but there's a giant hole in the bottom. And if you could just put your resources together to repair the hole, you wouldn't have to get this water out, but that's the survival mechanism that takes over when, you know, really the best thing would be to heal the boat, to patch that hole. What is it about our society that keeps people trapped? And I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but first off, do you feel like a lot of people get trapped in some of these survival archetypes? Yes, we all do at some point in our life. And I think there's a few reasons why our culture has a hard time kind of shifting out of the shadow expression of them. I think number one is very simple. It's chronic stress. Mm-hmm. Like our culture is chronically in a sympathetic state, in a fight or flight state. So if your nervous system is in that state, you're always going to be in survival mode. Mm-hmm. Right. And I love when Paul says, when you're running from a lion, it's not a good idea to throw in a cartwheel. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which right. means also like when you're under chronic stress and you're running from the lion, so to speak, 
doing anything that's different, creative, new or novel is actually a threat to your survival. Right. So actually making a change when you're in that sympathetic state is very difficult. I think there's also a lot of kind of like old religious programming and kind of like residue that's kind of been carried with a lot of people where actually looking at these archetypes brings up like a lot of guilt and shame. So any ability to like explore the parts of yourself that are like kind of dark or uncomfortable to look at, there's a lot of guilt and shame, I think, derived from a lot of kind of like the mainstream, like religious institutions where we kind of shy away from looking at those parts of ourselves. Sure. So I think with that, there's some of that unwillingness as well. But, you know, in my own work, obviously, I'm biased because the people that are coming to me are the ones that are willing to look at those aspects of themselves. But one of the reasons that archetypes are really helpful for some of this work is because archetypes aren't personal. Yeah. You know, when you explore the victim or the saboteur, if you know that, hey, everyone has a victim, everyone has a saboteur, it's a collective pattern that you're experiencing on an individual level, it becomes less of a personal thing and therefore a little bit easier of like a barrier of entry of like, okay, I'm willing to explore this because this is not just me. We all have this. Yeah. So yeah. since archetypes are collective patterns, not personal things, it's a much more kind of like friendly language to use to explore these parts of yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the main reasons that I incorporate archetypal work within my practice is because a lot of people are coming to me after they've been through years of treatments within the medical establishment around getting pregnant. They want to have a baby and they're desperate to have a baby, but it's something's not clicking there. And one thing I'll have them do, they don't want to use any more IVF. Maybe they can't even afford to do IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. You pump yourself full of all these synthetic hormones. You force the body to get pregnant, even if the body otherwise perhaps wouldn't be able to carry a pregnancy. And so they come to me and we start working, but they're really surprised that I don't start with lab work and all that other stuff. I actually ask them the first question I ask, which I've already kind of alluded to, is related to how you show up in the world. And a part of the first questionnaire, I actually ask them, which archetype do you currently embody and which archetype would you ideally want to embody? And oftentimes they've never even heard about archetypes. And I will read you know, Jung's definition. The Jungian archetypes are defined as images and themes that derive from the collective unconscious. This is, of course, through Carl Jung, who is a contemporary of Sigmund Freud. Archetypes have universal meanings across cultures and may show up in dreams, literature, art, or religion. So it's somewhat vague, and it's actually pretty nebulous how you answer the question. If you do go to like, you look up a list of Jungian archetypes, you'll see that there's all different types and subtypes and everything else. But the way that people answer is often very interesting. And it oftentimes doesn't reflect that they've been thoughtful about this transformation that happens over nine months of pregnancy. And then bam, in a moment, you are now expected to be a dad. The baby's out. You're now a dad. Whatever you thought you were before rapidly dissolves. And when I find that people are resistant to that dissolution of their former identity through this spiritual transformation that is childbirth, I find that they end up being ill-equipped, but actually they start to distance themselves from the experience because it's so confronting. So, you know, one thing that we've talked a little bit about, and I know that you're not in birth work, 
But when you think about these transitions, you know, what I always say is that you are dying in childbirth. You're leaving this old identity behind. You're assuming this new identity. Is there a way for somebody, if they were working with you, what advice would you give them about utilizing this archetypal, I don't want to say strategy, this archetypal exercise in order to prepare themselves for any major transition in life, especially something as challenging and sacred as becoming a parent? Yeah. So, you know, I love the exploration of the mother and father archetype, because that's one of your first introductions into archetypes is your relationship with your parents when you're a child. So you're in the child archetype, and you're in relationship with mom and dad, the mother and father archetype. And this really sets the stage for how you mother yourself, how you father yourself, how you parent the child inside of you. And I think that sets the stage for how you parent anyone else. You know, so I think parenting your inner child and becoming the mother and the father to the child inside of you that you may have needed back then, but may have not received, I think that's one of the most important steps to take. Because a lot of times what you realize is the challenging ways in which you relate to yourself is a mirror of how mom treated you or how dad treated you. So a lot of the ways in which we sabotage or our inner judge or our inner critic, our perfectionist, those are all of the ways in which our parents related to us. And then we take on the persona of those archetypes and how we relate to ourselves. Yeah. So I think the prerequisite to being a healthy, conscious parent to any child is to be the parent to your inner child that the child inside of you still so desperately needs. Because if you haven't yet done that, then you're going to project all of those unresolved wounds outward onto the next generation. This is why you see patterns repeat themselves generation after generation. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, archetypally, the mother represents how you relate to your inner life. And the father represents how you feel received by the outer world. So if you take a look at your relationship with your mom, that very often relates to how you relate to parts of yourself, your inner life. And then if you take a look at your relationship with your dad, how you felt received by dad really sets the stage for how you think you're going to be received by the world, right? So doing a lot of that mother and father archetype work to me is like, the number one prerequisite to really embodying a healthy parent archetype to, you know, your own biological or adopted children. Yeah. And I can imagine for a young child who is being parented by somebody who hasn't done some of this, it sounds basic, but it's actually quite hard because these are conditioned behavioral patterns in how we show up in the world and how we relate to others. I think it would be very confusing as a child to be cared for, let's say, by a father, um, because I will never be a mother, but to be cared for by a father who still has these wounds from that poor relationship I had with my father, perhaps. And it wasn't the worst relationship, but if I'm still vying for my father's love and attention, and I'm going to do things that are outside of the bounds of what I would consider integrity to myself, how is that going to be received by a child who's looking at the world as an infinite realm of possibilities. And of course, then, if I project that onto my child, 
that's going to lead to attachment disorders, I presume, with my child. And neither of us are child psychologists, but this is well-rooted in the work of Rudolf Steiner and the Waldorf Education Program. Like During those seven years, you need to really be showing up as the person that you want to be, an, an empowered individual, because they're looking for somebody to keep them safe, to make them feel loved, to keep them safe, to show them boundaries. And if we haven't done that work for ourselves based on past wounds or relationships with our parents or whatever else, and if we stay in perhaps that victim mentality, we're merely going to be projecting those wounds onto this child. Like you said, they're going to grow up in those early years with this strange relationship with their dad because their dad hasn't found a way to embrace his own power. I do think that this is a lot harder than perhaps we're making it sound, but I'm curious, have you worked with anybody since you do so much work with archetypes, have you met anybody in your work who actually has gone through this process and how was it received? That I've taken through this process? Yeah, perhaps so that you can just kind of reflect on a client that you've worked with in your programs where you're like, gosh, this is what we're talking about, these survival archetypes. One of the systems that I use with the archetypes is based on Caroline Miss's work. I've done a lot of professional training with her. And she uses what's called the 12 archetype wheel, which matches up with the 12 houses in astrology. Uh So what I guide people through, and I do this with almost every client that I work with, is I help the client determine their 12 main archetypes, which are the four survival archetypes plus eight individual archetypes. And then I take them through a process of casting the wheel So they start to see which archetype is showing up in which house. For example, the first house relates to your ego and personality. The second house relates to values, finances, self-worth, etc. The third house relates to communication and self-expression. Fourth house is home and family life. And it goes around. You have work and health. You have one-on-one relationships. You have spirituality. You have group relationships. So you have all of these different houses, which relate to all of these different aspects of your life that you're in relationship with. So I allow the client to see which archetype is showing up in which house, which area of your life. And then I guide them in a process of starting to see the interconnectedness of the wheel where all of these archetypes are interacting with one another. For example, if I use my wheel as an example, In my ego personality, my first house, I have the healer. And then across from that, in the seventh house, in one-on-one relationships, I have the saboteur. So for me, my healer and my saboteur are very often engaging one another. It might be me showing up for someone else, trying to heal them at the expense of myself, right? That would be an example of the healer and the saboteur working together. or. In my sixth house, I have the hero. And across in my 12th house, I have the shapeshifter. And the hero is in my house of work. So there's a part of me that wants to be the hero in my work and save the day. So the shapeshifter steps in and says like, okay, who does this person need me to be? I'll shapeshift into that so I can be their hero. So this archetype wheel almost creates like a blueprint of all of the archetypal patterning that you can see very clearly. And it's been like the most amazing framework to 
allow the person to just see very easily the patterns that have been going on for a long time that have been, you know, patterns of adaptation, patterns of survival, but also it contains a lot of the light expressions. Like that's really what we want to step into are the light expressions. I actually just did Mike Salemi's wheel like a couple of weeks ago because he's having a kid in a couple of months. And, you know, I took him through this work and he was just like blown away by all of these patterns that were coming up that he was starting to be consciously aware of and how important that was for him prior to stepping into fatherhood. So to me, that's been like the greatest kind of like framework to use guiding a person through is using that wheel itself. Yeah. You know, I'm guessing, you know, are you married? I can't remember. Not married. No. So your partner, she has four kids. Is that right? Three. Three kids. So you sort of were adopted into this family, so to speak. You're now having to embrace this, uh, perhaps a very, very different role in your life compared to before having met her. What was that experience like for you? Like, I want to be very specific. Like, if you could look back and look at what archetypes were kind of being embodied in your life then, and then immediately having to switch, how did that change look for you? It may be getting into the weeds a little bit, but maybe you can just kind of yeah. like reflect on that a little bit. For me, that process has been very much related to me stepping into my power and stepping into the father archetype, the warrior archetype, all of like the king archetype, the real kind of like masculine, more authority leadership based archetypes. And my partner, she's also a medical doctor and she's you know an incredibly hard worker like incredibly passionate highly developed she's actually the one that introduced me to the archetype wheel it's funny we did my wheel the day that we got together for the first time she jokes around that she just wanted to see what she was getting herself into but those archetypes have really been showing me where i need to take more command in my life i need to set better boundaries in my life i need to be able to not be afraid of my own anger, not be afraid of the energy that, you know, might hold a lot of passion. But in the past, I experienced it as more destruction. Wow. You know, I used to be yeah. afraid of my father's anger, because sometimes it would get violent, or I would hear things breaking in the house. So I would kind of like hide in my room. And I had this awareness of like, oh, like anger's not safe. But literally last night, like, my partner and I were having a discussion because her daughter has special needs. And it's very challenging being in a relationship with a child with special needs, because you try and instill certain things or teach certain lessons, but you feel like it just like doesn't get through and you see the same patterns repeating themselves over and over again. And there's been many times where she'll kind of act out and maybe get physically violent with my partner. And in the past, I've kind of like, taken a step back and allowed them to work it out on their own. And then afterwards, take her daughter aside and kind of work with her myself, you know, what was coming up for you? You know, what were some of the emotions? What were you experiencing? And my partner yesterday was sharing with me was like, look, that's not working anymore. Like you need to take more of a masculine father figure approach of like, if she puts her hands on me, you need to set a boundary and say, that's not permitted anymore. 
where it's almost like I was taking wow. more of like the mother approach <laughs> of like yeah. being like the safe container Hold for space each of for them. the process. Yeah. Hold space yeah. and allow her to explore these parts of herself in like a safe space. But that was not the role. That was the role I played for a while, but now I'm in an archetypal transition of like, now I need to be the boundary setter. Now I need to like lay down the law. And that's very uncomfortable for me because of how I experienced that with my own father. Right. So that's just an example. Because you're worried about impressing upon somebody fear or whatever it was that you were experiencing when you heard your dad being the strong mountain and laying down the law or however you want to word it. You don't want to impress upon them the same emotional experience that you recall from hearing him raise his voice or whatever. Yeah. There's a part of me that doesn't want her to have the same experience that I had when I was a child. Oof. Right. So it's more a reflection of me consciously engaging my anger and my boundary setting and doing it without fear, doing it in a healthy way, doing it in a conscious way. And I've just been very afraid of doing that because of my past experiences as a child. Oh, that is really interesting, Greg. You've got me like actually thinking now about the last interaction I had where I yelled at my daughter or whatever else, and we try to hold back. And this gentle parenting movement that's come to be, you know, there's all kinds of funny TikToks out there where it's like, hey, remember whenever you listened to your parents and you had very clear boundaries and you knew that you'd have consequences and that's why you didn't misbehave or sneak out of the house or whatever? How's the gentle parenting thing working for you? And it's the same generation. It's all our age group of people who are circulating these videos. But I do think that the gentle parenting thing was born out of exactly what you're talking about. We don't want people to feel the way that we did when we were being yelled at as a kid. And that is still important. But now the pendulum has swung to a direction where nobody's setting boundaries. There are no boundaries on kids. You need to let them be kids. And there's a cost to that as well. And I think that you sort of sounds like you kind of learned that the hard way in this interaction with your partner. Yeah. And also what I've realized in myself just by engaging these relationship dynamics is when I shy away from my own anger, I shut down, I disconnect. And shutting down and disconnecting is way more damaging in a relationship than actually expressing anger. Mm. So at least when you're expressing anger, you're being honest, authentic, and staying engaged with the person. But if I'm afraid of my own anger, I'm going to disassociate from those parts of me and therefore disassociate from the relationship. And I think that's unhealthier than staying engaged, even though there might be some challenging emotions there. So that's something I'm also learning in myself, learning the hard way. Amazing. Greg, we're going to take a very, very short break. We're going to talk about the image of God, the Imago Dei archetype. Uh We'll be right back. Very, very short break. Hey guys, brief pause here in this amazing conversation. I hope you're enjoying it. But I want to take a moment, if you're a midwife, specifically a midwife, and you're looking for an MD consultant on a regular basis, or if your state requires a supervising authority, prescribing authority, they have all these different terms for it, and you're struggling to find an OBGYN that is respectful, that is helpful, and that is well-experienced in a wide variety of modalities to keep your clients out of the hospital and clinical system and on path for a home birth or out of hospital birth, 
I do have a program that is probably right for you. It's my collaborator program. And there are various levels, but effectively at the highest level, it's a monthly membership fee that you pay to me. And with that fee at the gold level, I will order labs, imaging, medications, whatever it is that you need. I will also sign on as your prescribing authority or supervising physician, whatever your state calls it. And even if you don't need that, based on your state licensing restrictions, you're also going to get one-on-one clinical assistance from me where I give you information and sort of a gleaning of my experience in order to help you counsel your clients to the best of your ability. I know this is a pain point for a lot of midwives out there, but you don't have to look any further. I've got you. Just go to belovedholistics.com slash collaborate and you'll find all of the details about that program. Um, There's also a silver level in case you just need the one-on-one help with decision-making, but I've got you covered regardless of what your needs. Just head to my website and check it out. And of course, you can always book a discovery call if you need any specific questions answered. All right, let's get back into my conversation now. All right, Greg, let's get into Imago Dei, the Imago Dei archetype, the image of God. What do you want people to know about that? So the image of God, the Imago Dei, is one of the most important archetypes to explore because of how much it informs from the back, Mm -hmm. right? It's constantly informing from the unconscious. And 99% of the time, we're not consciously aware that it's actually informing our choices, behaviors, belief systems. So... If we take a look at, for example, the survival archetypes, how our image of God or our perception of that which we consider to be God or source influences all of the survival archetypes. For example, if you see God as kind of like this off-planet father figure, that very often is going to keep you in the child archetype you know, failing to take full self-responsibility. right? Or if you still have this belief system that God's kind of like this like spiritual Santa Claus, where if I do good things, I get good things. But if I do bad things, I get bad things. That actually sets you up for the victim archetype. Because what happens when you do something good, but you don't get the reward you think you deserve? You feel victimized. Or if you get something that you don't want, but you don't feel like you did something to deserve it, that keeps you in the victim archetype. So that whole kind of like, do good, get good, do bad, get bad kind of like reward punishment relationship with God sets up, like I said, that victim archetype. Let me comment on that real quickly, because I actually think this is really critical, especially with what happened during the pandemic. And I know you're going to probably relate this to that. But, you know, we're as far back as we can go in written human history, we had a very different cosmology. The cosmology was that God was within Earth. We are inextricably linked with nature and therefore our planet, Tierra Madre, Gaia, Pachamama. I mean, these mythologies go way back before Christianity. And it wasn't until... And I did this episode, episode 72, on a briefish history of Western medicine, which is in Women Healers, where I talk about this and how women who were even closer, even more intermeshed with nature, how in order to perhaps impose power and strip them of this inherent remembering of how powerful they are, we 
transitioned from deities that resided within us, within the earth, and transplanted them into the clouds governing over earth. And it's almost as if our entire society is constructed around a victim archetype, where there is something else out there that is going to save me, whether it's a politician, it's a priest, it's a doctor. And I think that's actually done quite a bit of harm to our relationship with self and with the planet at large, but really even just how we communicate with other people. It's the scarcity mentality. If somebody needs to save me from myself, whether it's in birth, at the end of life, anywhere in between. So I want to just you know plug that in there because what you're describing is actually far more profound and important for us to acknowledge if we want to see anything change in the world, this victim mentality, this victim archetype. It's not a blame and shame. It's not saying, hey, get over it, sweetheart. It's we have to just acknowledge where we're at. And we are living in a society where there's always somebody else that has the answers for us. I just want to plug that in there, but go on. Yeah, it's the victim is always looking to be rescued. Right, right. Right. So right. the rescuer could be Jesus. The rescuer could be some medical intervention. It could be the doctor. Right. So when you're playing the victim looking to be rescued, you're outsourcing your power. You're not taking full self responsibility. You know, I love the just Bingo. saying that victimhood is anything less than full self responsibility. I love when Paul Selig says you can't be a master and a victim at the same time. <laughs> right, right, right. And now this is not to completely reject the victim archetype because they all serve a purpose. Like, for example, if you're in a marriage that you're being physically abused, to deny that you're a victim and to stay in the marriage would not be a good idea. So the light side of the victim is to really acknowledge when you're being victimized and to take action, mm -hmm. right? To take action, to set a boundary, right? That's the empowered victim that becomes the victor. Right, right. Right. I also wanted to go back to something you had said earlier about this relationship we have with our parents, because I think ultimately, if we're not able to heal these wounds and stand in our own power and perhaps just recognize where we came from, who we are and where we want to go that the ultimate victim archetype actually is something that was impressed upon us even in our relationship with our parents. And I think the way a lot of people have shown up in the world, even during the pandemic, was somebody out there has got the answer for me. And that first person who had all the answers was your parents. So in a lot of ways, this is to steal a little bit from Paul Cech, like we've got a lot of children walking around in adult bodies, but they haven't actually embraced adulthood, which requires you to accept the outcomes of your decisions if you're going to claim any autonomy over the way you show up in the world and where you're headed. Absolutely. So we talked about the child, the victim in relationship to the Imago Dei. So the saboteur, you know, our perception or relationship of what God is leads to a lot of self-sabotage. For example, a lot of people who were taught in their religion that they're always supposed to be selfless. And they're always supposed to be doing for others. Oh, I'm so glad and you're saying they should that. not be taking care of themselves. There's so much self-sabotage in that belief system. So the saboteur is so woven into the religious institution. Not that it's always bad, but you can see very clearly, and we can also explore the pandemic, how these survival archetypes are woven in. The prostitute is also very interesting, where... You know, for me on my archetype, I have the prostitute in the house of spirituality. 
which has been a very interesting thing to explore because the prostitute's all about compromise and negotiation. And also the prostitute is always like looking for a guarantee. And spirituality is a lot about stepping into the unknown. And the prostitute does not like the unknown. It likes safety and security. So what I've explored within myself is where my prayer life or the way I talk to God is a form of negotiation. And how much like people's prayer becomes, God, if you give me this, I promise I'll do this. There's the prostitute archetype. There it is. Yeah. I mean, God, that's right? contemporary religion, especially through yeah. the lens of Catholicism and Protestantism. Yeah. It's compromise negotiation and always looking for a guarantee or some sort of transaction that benefits you in some way. So there's how the prostitute shows up in relationship to God. So there's the four survival archetypes in relationship to the Imago Dei. Mm, I love that, Greg. You're very, very thoughtful about these things. We've really kind of already said this, and I don't really care to even talk about COVID anymore, but when you were given your interpretation of some of these themes, when you saw things that were happening during the pandemic, this is not a matter of masks or no masks, vaccine, no vaccine, lockdown, whatever. I'm sure nobody cares about that. When you were seeing how policies were being made, how people were turning to the news and whatnot, can you maybe elaborate in a couple sentences just what you saw happening through the lens of some of these survival archetypes? Sure. So if we look at the evolution of COVID, we start with kind of like this big bad wolf that's out to get you. And we're told you need to stay home, you need to socially distance. And that triggers the victim archetype, right? Like we're the victims here. We're under attack. We have to hide. Like there's just victim archetype to start. And then there's the authority, whatever you want to consider to be the authority that is telling you what to do. And most people are kind of like sitting and waiting for commands of like, can I do this? Or can I do that? Should I do this? Should I not do that? Mm. Should I take this and not that? So there's the outsourcing of the power of choice, which is the child archetype. And then there's all of this fear that's being instilled, like just pumping of the energy of fear through social media and the news. And fear is what activates the saboteur archetype. So all of a sudden we start sabotaging freedoms and constitutional rights and all of these things that we hold so dear to us as soon as fear hits, we're ready to sabotage it for right. safety, security, and survival. So you see the evolution of the victim, the child, the saboteur, and the prostitute is really also our way of negotiating our values. I think we moved very far away from our values, like what our country is based on and built on, like our value structure was totally abandoned. And you also saw that, you know, the prostitute archetype is a lot about abandoning values for financial gain, right? So obviously, you can look at like the pharmaceutical industry and the politics, like where there's a lot of sabotaging of values for financial incentives and financial gain. So that's a very easy way to see the prostitute archetype. So those four survival archetypes, understandably so, came out immediately when COVID hit because yeah. COVID shifted everyone into survival mode, which is why they're called survival archetypes. 
Hmm. It's really funny that that happened too, because up until you know 2019 into 2020, we'll look at pharmaceutical companies in general. I don't want to get like too much in the weeds on this, but you're making me very thoughtful about this. Prior to that, people were distrustful of pharmaceutical companies, especially Pfizer, Bayer, the big ones. And they were distrustful because they didn't feel like they were being cared for, that their best interests were being kept in mind. What does it tell us about this tendency that we have to fall into the survival archetype? Like it does serve us, but how could this happen on such a massive scale for so many, but others didn't? Like what was the differentiator between the people that fell into that survival, that victim mentality and those that didn't? I mean, do you have any gesticulation on that? I'm kind of curious about that. I think there's a couple of things. I think one of the biggest ones is what we started with is I think people that had a sense of purpose anchored in their purpose, where I think, was it JP Sears? Like very early on, he said, like, the best way to avoid panic is to stay anchored in purpose. And to wake up every day with a sense of purpose or mission, that makes it a lot easier to not get swept away by the chaos. So I think that's one thing. I think also, our relationship with death in our culture is probably like the biggest factor that showed up. Because if we're talking about survival archetypes, most people's relationship or belief systems around death really dictate their relationship with the survival archetypes, right? If you think that, you know, the death of the physical body is like the end, just like lights out then you're going to do absolutely everything you possibly can to ensure the survival of mm. your physical body, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the survival of just like maintaining the status quo. Yeah. Because if it's lights out, then there's nothing else, you know? <laughs> so I think the myth around death is probably the biggest driving factor that made us so susceptible to that. I agree 100%. Those are the two things that come to mind. I suppose if you're living in a space, and I know that this is not rocket science for anybody who listens to my show, but under the pretense that everything is out to get us, like you said, this flight or fight is always being triggered, whether it's the IRS, it's some upcoming election, your guy didn't win. I mean, you could come up with everything. There's contaminants in my water, my cell phone's you know, boiling my mitochondria. Like There are so many things to worry about that people can choose to acknowledge or they can just blissfully be unaware and continue on their life. The pandemic was hard to do that. It was hard to ignore that. But if we go out into our yard and we see bugs as a problem and we see climate change as a problem and we see X, Y, and Z, it all reflects that if we silo ourselves off, then we're going to be safe. But of course, we still don't feel safe because we're not living in purpose. You can't isolate yourself and live a healthy life where you're never going to see anybody, never have hugs, never kiss anybody, never make friends, go to dinner parties, whatever. That's not a way to live. And this fear of death, I think, is reflected in our sort of ongoing war against nature, which was really started back. Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, they really got us to look at the human body differently. It's the sum of parts. As long as we can control it, and really, this even dates back before that. It was part of our changing cosmologies. But if we can control it and measure it, then we have some way of escaping our own mortality. And that obviously isn't playing out. But then if you look at the transhumanists, it's like, ah, we have this option. We can upload ourselves into the cloud or whatever and be on some 
Joe Schmo's hard drive in his basement for the rest of eternity. There is a way to stay alive. I think you're right that most of the things that we do that are actually detrimentally impacting the way that we show up in the world, the way that we experience one another, it all comes back to this war against nature and our fear of our own mortality, which is probably in part due to church doctrine. But it's playing out in such complicated ways. You know, I'm good friends with Charles Eisenstein, and he has written quite a bit about this. But he, like I, I was very optimistic. I was like, oh my gosh, the world is changing. The world is getting better. And then suddenly the pandemic happened and everybody fell back. It's like we regressed to children and we needed somebody else to tell us what was right, including a re-embracing of the promises of the pharmaceutical companies who never had our best interests in mind. Now, I know I'm generalizing everybody. I know that there are some good things that have come out of pharmaceuticals, but these companies, if we could learn anything from even the Purdue Pharma scandal with the solicitation of doctors to embrace this new promise of pain management, OxyContin, OxyCodone, all of these opioids that now is the promise for everybody in chronic pain, which it's not, and it hasn't played out that way, but Purdue Pharma really screwed the pooch with how they made this work. And they were preying on the victim mentality. And Pharma and Pfizer and Moderna, they have preyed on that victim mentality. So it was just so interesting to see such an abrupt shift, 180 degree turn. And I think you've given me this extra language in order to explain why some people succumbed to that and why others were like, what the fuck are we doing, guys? Like, let's get back to work. We've got other things going on. Like, what are we doing here? But man, is it complicated. I, I'm guessing yeah, that these past couple of years were very interesting for you. <laughs> very interesting. And it was a bright light into the parts of ourselves that we forgot existed, didn't know were there, or were still unhealed or unresolved. And I love like the term age regression, mm. where like whenever you get triggered, like, you revert back to like some aspect of you that is seven years old or eight years old. Or, <laughs> right. So I love like when these archetypes come up, like to ask yourself the question, like, how old do I feel when I'm acting this way? Like, how old do I feel when this pattern takes me over? And then what you realize is like that age was kind of like the introduction to that archetype of like, oh, this is the first time I played the victim for the first time. This is when I self-sabotaged for the first time. This is when I prostituted myself for the first time. So I think it gives us a beautiful opportunity to reclaim and recover those aspects of ourself that we still regress back to because they're still pulling us back because they need us to bring them forward. You know, so... <laughs> that is so interesting. Yeah. I think it has to happen that way because you can't move forward in life, in growth, in spirituality, if there's still parts of that child inside of you that are still wounded, unhealed, unresolved. Like there's like this tether that keeps pulling you back. It's kind of like the child archetype is like the gatekeeper that prevents you from entering the kingdom if you haven't fully recovered and reclaimed him or her yet. Well, since we're coming to the end of the interview, since we have talked a little bit about wounding as a child, I know one point we did kind of throw around pre-recording was talking about childhood trauma. Uh -huh. And the word trauma is loaded because first off, not really a safe bet to compare traumas. Although I think some people would say there are certain things in life that seem unforgivably traumatic to a child. 
you know, molestation, seeing your parents die violently. I mean, we could create a big list of things. However, I think that trauma also shows up in more subversive is not the word, but yeah, a little bit more occult. Like it's a little insidious that something happened and through maybe some regression therapy or whatever, you might get into it. But I think many of us are carrying some degree of trauma. So my final question in exploration with you, Greg, is if a person has identified that it's something may have happened before the age of 10, let's say, maybe four or five years old, is there any advice that you could give? I know that you're not a psychotherapist necessarily, but you are very thoughtful about these things. What advice would you give to somebody who is trapped in a survival archetype based on something very real and very traumatizing that happened when they were a kid? Yeah. So two things come to mind. The first is, you know, I love Gabor Mate's work. Love it. You know, I've taken a lot of his courses and I love how Gabor talks about trauma as it's not what happened to you, it's what you perceived, right? And also differentiating feelings from perceptions. And, you know, for example, if I look back at my childhood, you know, I was a competitive golfer when I was much younger and I would be playing golf tournaments and my dad would walk the course, you know, as I was playing. And I remember many times when I started to not play well, my dad would leave and just wait in the clubhouse for when I finished. He didn't want to see and it. At the time, what I perceived was when I don't perform well, dad abandons me. But years later, I inquired about that. And I asked him and what he said was, I figured and I thought that if you weren't playing well, that you wouldn't want me there. So I left because I didn't think that you would want me watching you if you weren't performing well, if you were struggling. So in reality- Same experience, very, very, it's like looking at the same flower bouquet on the table, but on your side, you've got a couple more red flowers. He's got the couple other yellow flowers. You're seeing the same Uh bouquet, but just from a different direction. Exactly. Wow. So I developed a perfectionist mentality, like- a really intense like work ethic. Like I always had to achieve at the highest level because there was a part of me that believed that if I don't, people abandon me. My father abandons me. So that's where trauma is very simply how you perceived an event. So that's number one is like being able to like compassionately inquire about your perceptions and if they're really true and if there's other possibilities. You know, like Gabor talks about like, his mother like handing him off when he's six months old because she was taken by the Nazis and he thought he was being abandoned when she was actually saving his life. You know, so (laughs) trauma really being 100% about perception. And the second component is, you know, I work with a lot of trauma. I work with a lot of clients that have, you know, sexual abuse, a lot of abandonment, a lot of really challenging stuff. And I think too many people put too much pressure on themselves to forgive the person that may have traumatized them, the perpetrator, so to speak. And what I tell people, and I learned this from Matt Kahn, who's one of my favorite teachers. What's his name? Matt Kahn? Matt Kahn. Yeah. K-A-H-N. He's amazing. And he said something once in a workshop about forgiveness, and he said, You don't have to ever forgive the other person for what they've done to you. 
the only thing that you have to forgive is the story you created about yourself as a result of what happened to you. So powerful. So the only thing that I invite people to look at is what's the narrative you created about yourself as a result of the trauma? Let's just work with that narrative. And when you forgive the story, whether it's a story of unworthiness or unlovability or self-judgment or whatever it is, once you forgive the narrative, the story, then you actually heal the trauma because that's what you're carrying with you. Like, sure, you're carrying, you know, some of it in your body, right? So that's where like the somatic experiencing is really helpful. But what's attached to that is the narrative. And the narrative is what creates the archetypal contract. From the moment of that trauma, now I'm going to be the perfectionist. Now I'm going to be the judge. Now I'm going to take on the inner critic because that's what I need to do to survive. So those are the two things. There's, you know, the perception of trauma and then forgiving the narrative that you created about yourself rather than trying to forgive the other person, which never really goes anywhere. That is so powerful. That is a really, really great way to wrap this interview up. I'm going to have to look into Matt Kahn's work because this is actually so relevant for me. As you know, I do a lot of birth work and I also attend a lot of death. But in the birth space, people don't understand that my understanding of trauma is any stressor in your life that's not well integrated thereafter can be stored up and snowball and become a tremendously traumatic thing you know, after the event, you know, and a lot of us live with that until we die. And so when a person comes to me and they describe their birth as having been really traumatic, you know, you expect like, oh, there was alarms going off and blood was spraying everywhere, but it could have been a totally normal, healthy mom, healthy baby. Everything seems fine, but something didn't feel right. And then you find out that somebody did a vaginal exam without introducing themselves, or they said no to the vaginal exam, but the doctor did it anyway. I mean, it's these little, I don't want to call them microaggressions because that term has been used elsewhere, but there are these little things that we maybe as the perpetrators, so to speak, don't realize was harmful. But the story about that, that is told is that I wasn't respected. I wasn't heard. They didn't care about me. They didn't think, you know, it was because of my skin color. Whatever reason, this person harmed me and here's why they did it. Whereas this person who did it may have not even realized they were doing something wrong, which there is an important distinction there. And so in working through women who have had these traumatic experiences, even if it was not all that crazy of a birth, it was just the typical baby comes out, healthy mom, healthy baby, whatever. It is so helpful to get them to appreciate it. I do a lot of birth storytelling. And when they tell that story, oftentimes they are stuck in exactly the same way that you're describing it for kids. And that's not to say that you're being childlike. It's to say that these patterns are things that we have been modeled to us and that we've experienced in the past. And when we take on that victim mentality and create these stories, it had never occurred to me that it's not a matter of forgiveness. Who cares about the person who did it? What story have you told yourself? That's actually the thing you have control over. And I'm going to borrow some of this from you, Greg. Do you work with men and women? Have you ever had anybody who's talked to you about traumatic birth or anything like that? Because I'd love to be able to send people your way. It might be really helpful to them. Not off the top of my head in terms of traumatic birth, but obviously a lot of childhood trauma. I've worked with a lot of parents who've lost children. 
So obviously that's a big trauma, but I work with a lot of trauma around like just early childhood on the child side, on the parent side, like there's so much that happens in those years. So that's really where I've spent a lot of my time, but a little bit less in the birth process itself. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, you might have a new niche here, Greg. I might be sending people your way because it's almost 100% of the people who are struggling to get pregnant. I end up through getting to know them. I start to unveil, and not even just fertility, pregnancy. It's also like I've got these issues. And when you look back and do some biographical work, you're like, oh, something happened in your early years. And they've kind of repressed it because they don't know what else to do with it, which I don't blame them. It can be very painful to relive that over and over. But what if there was a way to reframe it for them and help them retell that story? That's really powerful work. So perhaps you and I maybe could even come up with that niche together and I (laughs) just filter people your way because the work you're doing with archetypes can be so profoundly impactful. And it's not that hard. It's really a matter of working through it in a systematic way and finding the language in order to show up in a respectful, compassionate, and open-minded way. So Greg, thank you. Thank you so much for illuminating me. Um, I'm sure people are going to love this episode. They're going to want to find more. So you talked about some of your programs in the beginning. Let's finish off with that. What do you want people to know about in the event that they want more Greg Schmaus? Yeah, so if they want to reach out to me directly, my website is healing4d.com. And that's the number 4d.com. And my 21-day online program, Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness, that's at healing4d.com forward slash htm. And you'll have a link for that in the show notes. And if they use that link and use the code podcast20, they can save 20% off Great. for the 21-day program. And then on social media, I'm on Instagram, 4D Healing. And then I just recently started a YouTube page, which is just my name. So they can find me on YouTube as well, where each week I'll post a little bit of content as well. That's awesome, brother. We're going to try to get people your way. I really, really appreciate what you're doing in the world. And I know things have probably been a little bit slow moving. It's also everybody's kind of in a down point right now with their businesses because it's this time of year before Christmas and all of that. But I also want to acknowledge and honor that I think as a man going through what you've gone through and coming into this space with a very unique skill set and approach to some very important things, I think it's what everybody I would hope would have the courage to do. I know that what you're doing has taken a lot of courage given everything we've learned about you. So I do want to just say man to man, friend to friend, like you're doing the good work, just keep it up. And I'm going to try to support you in every way that I can. I appreciate that. And thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and for having me on the show today. Totally. All right. We'll send people your way, Greg. Thanks again. Thank you so, so, so much for listening to this episode. Greg is such a beaming beacon of light. I'm so grateful that he was able to give us some time. If anything in this podcast has touched you in any way, share the episode with your friends. Tag me on Instagram. It's Nathan Riley, OBGYN. And if you haven't yet, go and leave a review or a five star just you know, with your thumbs, just click away on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. It really, really matters to me and my team here these types of efforts actually really, really help get these great conversations, these juicy conversations out to the people that need them most. So thank you for supporting the show. You can also go and check out our sponsors. All of the information about how to get savings on some of these top brands is available at my website where you'll find the show notes, which is belovedholistics.com slash podcast. 
And I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I'll be seeing you back here in one week where we're going to be talking to Brendan Murata. He's a filmmaker. He's an author. He's got a podcast. He has a film called American Circumcision and a variety of books, including the Intactivist Guidebook and Children's Justice. He is an incredible speaker on the topic of circumcision, which I think everybody out there who's pregnant and doesn't know the sex of their baby, especially those who do know that they have a little boy coming, I think we really grapple with this decision. This has become a cultural practice in the United States, but nowhere else in the world, apart from in certain Jewish communities, is this a common standardized practice on all little boys. So you don't want to miss this episode. I will be bringing Brendan's conversation to you right back here on the Holistic OBGYN podcast next week. Until then, guys, do no harm. Take no shit. I love you all. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will see you next week.